2: Welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Thursday and another busy hour ahead, including Johannesburg Horror. More than 70 people have lost their lives after fire tore through a building where migrants lived. We've got a live report from the scene as the rescue and recovery efforts continue. Plus, Idalia's fury, the remnants of the powerful Category 3 hurricane, still wreaking havoc. In the southeastern United States, officials saying some harder-hit areas may never look the same amid monster storm surges and dangerous flooding. And factory fumble, manufacturing activity in China contracting for a fifth straight month. The number's actually not as bad as feared, but new signs too that the property sector weakness is also weighing on consumer sentiment. And that data certainly hitting Chinese investor sentiment overnight. Stocks closing lower on Thursday. Japan posting a nice gain. However, though, all the major Asian stock markets ending August in the red. The Hang Seng tumbling more than 8% as you can see there on the month. The Shanghai down some 5% plus two now its U.S. data on tap. The Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the core PCE index, rising a modest and expected two-tenths of a percent last month. That comes out to around a 4.2% annual rate of inflation. Just remember that's still twice as high as the Federal Reserve's target. The market response for you? Well, U.S. stocks do remain on target for a mostly higher open. As you can see, the Dow, the outperformer. Green arrows in Europe on the screen as well. The major US averages in fact pairing a large portion of their August losses this week. I mean, new data showing the US jobs market is easing with most market participants now predicting that the Federal Reserve will hold rates steady at its September meeting. And that's a sigh of relief for stock market investors. Certainly plenty to come as always. But we do begin with the tragedy in Johannesburg. Firefighters and rescue crews searching through charred remains after a fire in the city's central business district claimed the lives of at least 73 people. Fire broke out in what's described as a hijacked building, one that's been taken over by people who couldn't afford to live elsewhere. It appears many of the occupants were asleep when the fire started. No clear statement yet on what may have caused the fire, but officials don't believe it was started deliberately. David McKenzie, joins us now on this, David. Just a a terrible tragedy there in in Johannesburg, and of course, difficult, I guess, to get a sense of who also might be lost and injured in this, given the people that were staying there. What are the authorities saying at this stage, and what are the survivors telling you too?
3: Well, Julia, they're telling us of a horrible early morning hours when a fire ripped through this building behind me. And you can see those gutted windows as people desperately tried to get out. Now, one uh, person said they were locked in. And though it isn't believed at this stage that this is a deliberate fire, the investigation is still going on. And fingers are being pointed to what a horrible human tragedy this has been there have been bodies put out on the street earlier there were forensic teams here trying to start identified the charred remains and many children uh, julia amongst the dead this is what's known as a hijacked building which means it was taken over by gangs then leased to mostly migrants who were squashed into living quarters that one uh, opposition leader said is like living like pigs i spoke to a witness who was there uh, and a survivor uh, when the fire broke out.
4: Listen, people, always, they make noise. Yeah, it's fire, 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 fire. When I am wake up, I just see in the gate, I see the fire. The space, when you're gonna enter, nothing. After that, I come back to my room. Then I broke the window. When I broke the window, the head is entered, but the body is not, is not entered. So I come back in the gate, the fire is full, full. After that, I don't have any plan. I just sit. Then, something is come to to me.
3: The smoke? The smoke yeah, the smoke is smoke come is. to
4: me. Yeah. After that, I just fall down. Then. From there, I don't know anything until now.
3: He blacked out and several of his family members are missing. There have been firefighters on the scene at this stage. Of course, it's a recovery mission by those firefighters who are praised for getting in here and are managing to save some people. There were people who were tying blankets and comforters to the bars of the windows and trying to get out any way they could. Witnesses say it was an awful scene. Now, uh, there is definitely a sense that this is shocking but not surprising because of the state of housing in this country and particularly in the city where an informal settlement basically can be squeezed inside a building like this, operating completely illegally under the nose of the city and national authorities. Julia?
2: David, huge questions to be asked to to your point there as well. I mean, I was just looking at the building behind you and trying to get a sense, and as we were showing some of those images with the the bars that some of the fire crew and the rescue crews were going through, uh, I know it's a tough question, but what about things like fire escapes and and doors and windows able to be opened? I mean, that gentleman was saying that he actually put his face, I think, his his head through the glass in order to try and break the window. What do we know about those kind of things? Well, one.
3: Well, one big question we've asked people, there seemed to be some kind of uh, barricade or locked door. We don't know if that was for security or there's some other explanation to that. But uh, imagine it like an apartment building with uh, apartments inside. But those were subdivided, sometimes 10, 15 people living in one apartment. The person we interviewed, the uh, uh, the, uh, survivor, he said there were at least six of them living in there. This is what people can afford. And because it's basically illegal, it means that it flies under the radar, at least one opposition figure blaming uh, local leaders for being involved in this. There's no direct evidence that I have seen, but it has been talked about, and the problem has at times tried to, tried to solve it. But this is a poor country with people needing places to live and not affording it, and just a few miles down the road is one of the richest parts of Africa. So it's, it's very jarring and the death toll is so extreme more than 70 people dead in a fire like this that it's it's really shocked this nation
2: certainly and our thoughts with everyone involved david thank you for that idalia losing strength but continues to pound parts of the southeastern united states now downgraded to a tropical storm it's moving along the coast of north carolina as you can see there Idalia stuck Florida, though, as a Category 3 hurricane on Wednesday, destroying homes and dropping heavy rain on the region. CNN's Carlos Suarez joins us now from Tampa in Florida. Carlos, and now the cleanup operation begins. Talk us through what happened there.
5: Yeah, that's right. So the cleanup effort is well underway here in Hillsborough County. The lone mandatory evacuation out here was lifted yesterday. So the folks that evacuated ahead of that storm were allowed to return. Now, just to the west of us is uh, Pinellas County. That is home to the St. Pete and Clearwater area. The mandatory evacuation order there has also been lifted. And some of the flooding that we saw there yesterday has uh, disappeared. The floodwaters there have receded. Now, it is a very different uh, story, a little bit further north of where we are, about two hours to the north here in Pasco County. That is where thousands of homes, we're told, are currently underwater and at least 150 families had to be rescued overnight.
3: Here we go.
5: Hurricane Idalia barreled through Florida Wednesday, making landfall near
6: Keaton Beach. Oh, my house okay. is down in Keaton. Okay. I don't know if it's there or not. But this right here, I I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to have a house to go home to.
5: The eye of the storm ripped through Florida's Big Bend region with maximum sustained winds of 125 miles per hour. (laughs) Resulting in a a once-in-a-century weather event.
1: It was bad. It was heavy, heavy, heavy winds. Um, Worst I've ever been in.
5: The Category 3 storm left homes demolished and streets flooded. We clearly have uh, significant damage throughout the Big Bend region. This family in Perry, Florida, watched as trees fell directly on their home.
6: Oh my gosh!
7: No! Uh Oh! It's okay. It's okay.
8: It's okay. It's
5: okay. Up and down Florida's west coast, record-breaking storm surge occurred in Citrus County. Crystal River left devastated by floodwaters. People are actually really going strong and. and we are, an entire city of Crystal River is in a flood zone, so we, we have no choice but to, to move to higher ground. Further south along the coast in Hudson Beach, crews rescued residents by boat as the floodwaters came rushing into their homes.
7: I can't believe this. I've never seen nothing like it.
5: This family rescued, but heartbroken to leave everything behind.
7: And it just came in before we can get out, man, like so quick. We're trying to get in the truck, and it's up to the barely able to get the doors open.
5: In Pasco County, around 150 residents were rescued from flooded neighborhoods. This home caught fire in the midst of the floodwaters. Michael Bobbitt from Cedar Key, Florida, says he stayed behind to weather the storm.
7: These are all
0: little old school Florida villas, and they were just picked up and carried into the Gulf.
3: So that was heartbreaking to see.
5: One resident on Anna Maria Island posted this video of her swimming through floodwaters at 4 in the morning. Golf carts, cars were flooded, the trailer homes. I mean, it was up to our knees, our waist. We're riding bikes through it, so it got pretty high. Idalia then traveled north through Georgia into South Carolina, where the storm surge reached nine feet in Charleston, according to the National Weather Service, leaving roadways throughout the state treacherous. This car in Goose Creek, South Carolina, flipped over in the middle of the road. And so we expect these uh, rescue operations uh, to take place throughout the day, especially in the northern part of the state of Florida, as, uh, this, uh, as all of this water still needs to recede. Uh, Julia, as of uh, this morning, about 140,000 homes and businesses in the state of Florida are without power, and so the restoration effort has to get underway on that front as well. Much work to do. Carlos Suarez,
2: thank you so much for that. And new this morning, a group of pro-Ukrainian Russian guerrilla fighters have claimed responsibility for Sunday's drone strike in Russia's Kursk region. The group, called the Russian Volunteer Corps, say the attack struck a residential building and that they worked in tandem with the Ukrainian security service. And overnight, Russian officials say three drones were shot down in the Bryansk region. The attack comes one day after the biggest drone strike on Russian soil since the war in Ukraine began. The mayor of Moscow said a Ukrainian drone bound for Moscow was destroyed. Melissa Bell joins us now on this. Melissa, the guerrilla group's uh, crediting aside, it does say something, I think, about Ukraine's homegrown manufacturing capabilities in drones, of course, because there are limits on the weaponry that they've received from other countries around them, or NATO countries in particular, that they can't be used outside of Ukrainian soil. It's sort of interesting to note what we're seeing in terms of um, drone use here elsewhere.
9: That's right. The Ukrainians say that their own drone making capability has increased substantially. And yet, Julia, they never comment on any uh, of these drone attacks, neither confirming nor denying. You mentioned a moment ago uh, that uh, Russian group, it is Ukraine based, but made up of Russian citizens that is not just opposed to the war, uh, but opposed to Vladimir Putin's regime. And it is one of two principal paramilitary groups that has regularly over the course of the last few months uh, been carrying out, uh, it says, incursions onto Russian soil and that happened once again again, Ukrainians neither confirming nor denying any involvement or indeed any of the facts of the matter. But it is a reminder of how porous uh, the borders have become. And it is a reminder also of the fact that this is a war that is increasingly being fought on Russian soil. And that was one of the uh, words from the Ukrainian uh, president's office uh, after that massive drone attack of Tuesday to Wednesday night, uh, that this war is increasingly finding itself on Russian soil and that that cannot be stopped. It's important to remember, meanwhile, that here on Ukrainian soil, it continues to cause uh, misery to so many Ukrainians, and specifically, Julia, beyond those who are fighting uh, this counteroffensive, the very many uh, tens of thousands of Ukrainians who find themselves in the towns that by accident of geography have found themselves on the divide between Ukrainian soil and Russian soil now for nearly a year and a half. We went to visit one of those uh, towns very close to where the recent gains of the counteroffensive have been made along that South Zaporizhia front Uh, and it took us five checkpoints on the Ukrainian side to get to it. It is a veritable no man's land of misery that has been there for 18 months. The water's for the animals left behind. Svetlana draws some each week as she waits for her own supply. Or rather, her villages. It's too dangerous for emergency services, so she will carry it the rest of the way. I can't abandon the people, she says, the elderly. And she quotes a Soviet-era saying, if not you, then who But even in the center of Stepnogorsk, there aren't many people left. The Russians are only five kilometers away. Residential buildings like this one have been on the front line of this war for nearly a year and a half. The shelling say the few residents that are left here is day and night. About five to six hundred civilians left in this town from several thousand before the war. So far, they say that the counteroffensive hasn't made things much worse in terms of the shelling, nor, though they say, has it made things any better. It's dangerous every day, says Ior Samsonenko. Overnight, the roof of that house was hit, there was shelling yesterday afternoon, and a building was on fire just the other day. As we inspect the damage done by last night's artillery fire, a Russian drone inspects us, exploding just as we leave but little phases the local emergency services who've been showing us around. People are used to the war, says Mikola Malikin, before a shell interrupts him. Those the emergency services can't get to rely on people like Svetlana. She will now walk with what she can push on her bike for more than an hour towards enemy fire. But with her dog for company, she says, She's never afraid. Melissa Bell, CNN, Stepnogorsk, Ukraine. One of the questions we had as we went to visit this town, Julia, was... Who stays in those circumstances? The answer is the elderly and those who simply can't afford to leave. What we've been hearing over the last few days uh, are the beginnings of mandatory evacuations of families with small children. These are people who had refused to leave so far, who are reluctant to leave now, but the Ukrainian authorities are forcing to leave for the good of their children, Julia.
2: Yeah, what spirit. What an incredible woman uh, and her dog, of course, too. Uh, Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a historic decision by the Biden administration to provide military support to Taiwan, also ratcheting up tensions with China. Plus, not your garden variety property crisis. Chinese developer Country Garden warning its debt woes could worsen. What that means next.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number.
5: There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to First Move. The United States is threatening North Korea with fresh sanctions if it helps to rearm the Russian military. According to U.S. intelligence, the Kremlin is trying to obtain all kinds of weapons for its invasion of Ukraine. The report comes despite an outright denial from Pyongyang. Paula Hancock is with us now on this. Paula, it certainly throws the uh, visit by the Russian Defense Minister to Pyongyang last
7: month into new light. It does, Julia, yes. We've just heard from the Kremlin as well, having a a denial from them to Dmitry Peskov, the spokesperson, saying on a call with journalists that the two countries maintain a mutually respectful relations and uh, North Korea is Russia's important uh, neighbour. But there was a deflection uh, deflection when it came to uh, answering the question as to whether or not the two sides are close to a potential arms deal. Now, this U.S. intelligence report and Biden administration officials have pointed to this meeting that you mentioned, the Russian defense minister going to Pyongyang back in July. Uh, he was seen at a military parade with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. He was seen walking around an arms exhibition uh, with the North Korean leader as well, surrounded by different weapon systems. And they say that they believe they are close to signing a deal, Uh, and they also point out, as the uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., says that it is a violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions, which Russia has also signed on to.
10: The United States
1: is now able to share that Shurguv's visit was more than just a photo op. Russia used this visit to the DPRK to try to convince Pyongyang to sell artillery ammunition to Russia.
7: The report also saying they believe there has been a subsequent uh, meeting in Pyongyang as well with the Russian officials uh, going there. It's something similar to what we heard from South Korean intelligence officials uh, earlier this month as well. The NIS did say... That they believed that they were discussing an arms deal when uh, the defense minister was in Pyongyang, saying that they also believed that joint military exercises had been proposed by Moscow and that a Russian plane is believed to have transferred unknown military supplies earlier this month from Pyongyang. Now, CNN has no way of knowing what was on board uh, that plane. But this is certainly something that South Korean uh, intelligence officials and the US intelligence officials believe uh, is close. The fact that they are close and, in fact, quote, actively advancing talks of a potential arms deal. Now, as I say, it's been deflected by the Kremlin. It's been denied by North Korea, but it is something that has been believed to be an issue since late last year. The U.S. intelligence uh, officials at that point saying that they believed that there had been some kind of deal done and there had been uh, some weapons sold to the Russian mercenary group uh, Wagner at that point. Again, something North Korea had denied. But it is undeniable that the two countries have seen a closer relationship in recent years. Uh, And certainly it is a worry from the South Korean side that if North Korea is going to provide uh, much needed weapons and artillery to Russia, what will it receive uh, in return? Intelligence officials saying that they fear there could be missile and nuclear know-how coming the other way to Pyongyang. Julia? Certainly, and a U.S. shot across the
2: bow to North Korea as well, that if indeed this does take place, um, there will be consequences. Paula Hancock, thank you for that. Now, the Biden administration has approved the first ever transfer of U.S. military aid to Taiwan under a State Department program normally available only to sovereign nations. The package totals $80 million and U.S. taxpayers will be footing the bill. This new level of U.S. support for Taiwan will not go down well in China, which claims the self-governing island as its own. Kylie Atwood has more from the U.S. State Department.
8: The U.S. government has greenlit funding for a new type of military assistance program to Taiwan that's typically reserved for sovereign nations. That's according to uh, the State Department, which uh, notified Congress this week that they were moving ahead with this type of financing. And this type of financing, because it's typically reserved for sovereign nations, is likely to enrage China. Of course, the U.S. military, the U.S. government has sold Taiwan uh, military equipment in the past, but this is a new type of program that's being used, which is significant and likely uh, to make China frustrated because they don't view Taiwan as a sovereign nation. Also, the difference between this kind of assistance program versus the other military assistance that the U.S. has sold to Taiwan is that this type of assistance is actually paid for by U.S. taxpayer dollars. And uh, that means that the U.S. government is essentially giving a grant to Taiwan to be able to pay for uh, this military equipment. Now, this military equipment isn't likely to actually get. Taiwan for months or years from now. It has to go through the Pentagon's typical and long processes before it can actually get there, and the alert that went from the State Department to Congress earlier this week, notifying them that the U.S. government was moving ahead with this financing, wasn't specific about what military equipment will be included in this 80 million dollar package, but it did cite a num a range of possibilities, including air and missile defense systems, drones, uh, m- military training programs. You know, a whole host of options that Taiwan will now be able to get through this new grant from the U.S. government. Julia? Kali Atwood
2: there. And the Chinese Foreign Ministry has responded, say they stand in firm opposition, quote, to this decision. Now, rising Taiwan tensions coming amid a more property pain for Beijing. Heavily indebted developer Country Garden reporting a huge loss for the first half of this year. The company warning once again it could default on its debts and admitting key errors in judgment that have exacerbated the challenges, as Christy Lustound reports.
10: Last year was China's largest residential developer. Now Country Garden is battling a liquidity crisis. On Wednesday, they warned it could default on its vast debts as it reported a loss of $7 billion for the first half of the year. In a filing to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, Country Garden said this, quote, the company felt deeply remorseful for the unsatisfactory performance, unquote. A country garden has nearly $200 billion in total liabilities and is facing mounting pressure to pay off its debts. It said it was caught off guard by the depth and persistence of China's property slump, especially in smaller Chinese cities. For the past two years, China has been mired in a historic property slowdown, resulting in uncompleted homes and unpaid suppliers and creditors. And the slump has been deepening, with new home sales falling more than 34 percent year-on-year in July. Now, Chinese officials have introduced measures to shore up the market. On Wednesday, the Chinese megacity Guangzhou relaxed mortgage rules for home homebuyers. Analysts say such measures have not been enough. Consumers are reluctant to buy new homes because of falling home prices and rising unemployment. And with Country Garden now warning of default... Some fear the liquidity crisis could spread to China's wider economy and even abroad. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong.
2: And the Chinese central bank announcing in the past hour that it's cutting mortgage rates for first-time home buyers. It's the latest move from Beijing to try and shore up confidence in the sector. But the down payment ratio for first-time buyers is still a sizable 20%. All right, coming up after the break, nine-foot storm surges turn roads into rivers. Idalia weakens but still causes massive damage and disruption. That's next. Welcome back with a return to the extreme weather in the United States. And just take a look at this dash cam footage of a car picked up and tossed from the road like a child's toy. Two People were taken to hospital though with minor injuries. Wow, just take a look at that. Meanwhile, as Idalia weakens into a tropical storm, homeowners in Cedar Key, Florida, face clearing up damage like this. It was the most powerful storm to hit that region in more than a century. Let's bring in CNN's Diane Gallagher, who's at Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, where the storm is set to hit now. Diane, waterproofs on and definitely no surfing in those waves behind you. Um, it, yeah, it looks pretty
1: rough there. You know, Julia, there's actually one surfer who is out there. I don't know if he's still coming. We saw him catching some of these waves a couple of moments ago. Actually, he is. He's right back going out again. Uh, This is sort of the remnants (laughs) of Idalia as she uh, goes out into the ocean, passing over the coastline here in North Carolina. You're seeing these gnarly waves as they just sort of bash up against one of the many piers that litter the coastline of this state. This morning, we were dealing with gusts of about 45 miles per hour, 72 kilometers per hour. Those tropical storm force winds, still feeling them with much rain that we had as well. There were some isolated flooding in North Carolina and South Carolina. In fact, in Charleston, South Carolina, they saw more than nine feet of water because of this storm surge that Idalia brought in coupled with the rain and the king tide these highest of high tides that happen because of the alignment of the Earth and the moon at certain points of the year. And so it was truly a perfect storm for intense amounts of water, but as quickly as it came here on the East Coast, it has receded with no significant damage although there were several tornadoes spotted as well as water spouts in this area. Again the big concern now goes into this water here the ocean itself because Hurricane Franklin out in the Atlantic created swells off the coast of North Carolina as well as Idalia coming in and so underneath the surface they fear that coming up, it's a holiday weekend here in the United States that visitors to this area, it's very popular over Labor Day weekend are going to need to stay out of the ocean unless they are experienced surfers because of dangerous rip currents and just swells and tides that may not be suitable for tourists to the ocean. Again, it is a very busy weekend, typically in this part of the country all along the East Coast. So officials here are mostly concerned about that at this point. Feeling as if they really dodged the worst of what they expected to be a very terrible hurricane reaching this part of the country again as a tropical storm and then moving off into the water.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. But as you point out, the weather can still be very dangerous. I think I saw the head of your surfer at one point over um, your left shoulder there. You can see the tide ha, coming has, in right now too. <laughs> yeah, I yes. know, no. oh, look, you're getting wet now yourself. Wait, just just turn around again. Let me see if we can see our surfer again. Yeah, you see that, I think I
1: can see him. Is our surfer or still her. out here? he might be able to. Oh yeah, he, he is right back there. <laughs> yeah, uh, he may come up. We've seen him catch a couple of waves, actually, as they come in. Um, there were a bunch of them out here as the tropical storm. When when Idali was still a hurricane, as it was coming in, before it became a tropical storm, we actually saw a bunch of surfers, dozens of them, out in the ocean catching those waves. The emergency manager management director here in New Hanover County uh, warning people not to get into the water, but noted that he himself is a surfer and said if he wasn't busy trying to keep people safe, he would have been out in the water as well, pointing out that most surfers who would dare get in the ocean in these uh, conditions are well aware of what they can handle and will get back out before it becomes too dangerous for them. Uh, the waves have looked amazing. I'd like to be out there a board myself, but uh, instead I'm here like head-to-toe in rain gear. Uh, probably the <laughs> safer option for me, though. Yeah, I was
2: about to say, we'll call that brave and be diplomatic over it any other words. Um, We hope you stay safe. Great to chat to you. Thank you. We're back after this.
11: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events.
5: At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people
0: calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan
5: University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
11: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
2: Welcome back to First Move. Stocks are up and running as Wall Street takes place for the final session of August. All the major averages powering ahead in early trade. US stocks now on track for a fifth straight day of gains and a nice late August flourish too, but stocks still down for the month overall. The bulls getting a boost from just released inline inflation numbers, so nothing to panic about there. The big test comes tomorrow too when the US releases its monthly jobs report. And S, investors in Switzerland's biggest bank applauding today's results. The first, in fact, since UBS announced it was absorbing Credit Suisse. The lender today unveiling plans to reduce worker headcount in Switzerland as part of a billion-dollar cost-cutting drive. Thousands, of course, of Credit Suisse bankers have already left globally. And Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, we really are missing the point there in terms of the numbers. Can we please (laughs) talk about that enormous what, near $29 billion profit, basically down to what's called negative goodwill, the asset (laughs) value minus the price you paid.
6: Was this the deal of the century? I mean, everyone wants to know what happens after a shotgun wedding, don't they? And the honeymoon has gone on a bit too long, as far as I'm concerned. These results are pushed back. That was the headline figure, I think, that really stole the show today. Just what a deal this was. Despite all of Credit Suisse's problems, it was pretty much accounting for the entire uh, quarter's profit for UBS. So that was point number one. Point number two, this is more controversial. It's been the announcement that UBS is going to integrate Credit Suisse's domestic bank into their operations in Switzerland. There was so much opposition on this point right from when the acquisition was first announced. I remember protesters outside both headquarters. Essentially, it means that I think about one in three people in Switzerland will be banking with this group. So clearly Mm -hmm. a drop off in terms of competition. But also even going into these results a few weeks ago, UBS announced that they would no longer be needing that $100 billion plus government-backed loan. They don't want taxpayers on the hook for this. They don't need a guarantee. So that share price we're seeing today, UBS shares up up over 5%, not surprising at all, because by and large, this was a very good result.
2: Yeah, and actually, Sergio Motti, this returned CEO, said, actually, it looks big, but we're going to need it to um, sort of get down to uh, Mm -hmm. an efficient, streamlined bank after this. Uh, That's sort of the next question. And I think there were certainly fears around what this would mean in terms of cost cuts, stripping back, potential job Mm. losses too, Anna.
6: Well, that would be the other massively negative story, particularly in Switzerland, I think, is just how many jobs will be lost. And they haven't put a figure on the total number, but we know that 8,000 jobs have disappeared from Credit Suisse voluntarily, people have left. We know that today they've earmarked another 3,000. However, looking at the cost savings target, which is $10 billion by the end of 2026, I think we're looking at many thousands more jobs. And the only information we really got on that is that job cuts would be spread over a couple of years. But some analysts today predicting that could be between 30 and 35,000 jobs globally overall. So that is a massive number. And in Switzerland, if you didn't work for Credit Suisse, you worked for (laughs) UBS. So it'd be very hard for some people, I think, to find a job elsewhere.
2: Yeah, a huge hit for the financial sector workers Mm. there, certainly. Um, Anna, thank you. Anna Stewart there. Now, from old-school banking giants to the promise of game-changing AI, two Chinese tech firms officially jumping on the generative AI bandwagon Thursday. Important news for the world's second-largest economy as it charts
12: its high-tech future, as Michelle Toh reports. Chinese tech firms Baidu and SenseTime have just launched their answers to the chat GPT craze, rolling out their AI bots today to the general public. The move marks a new milestone in the global AI race, which is heating up. Baidu, for one, is now letting all users get their hands on its platform, which is dubbed ErnieBot. The tool allows users to conduct AI-powered searches or carry out an array of tasks from creating videos to making newsletters to providing summaries of complex documents. Now, the news sent Baidu's shares up immediately, surging more than 3 percent in New York on Wednesday and nearly 5 percent higher in Hong Kong on Thursday. Baidu is among the first companies in China to get regulatory approval for this rollout, and it's the first to launch this type of service publicly, a source tells me. Until now, Ernie Bot had been offered only to corporate clients or select members of the public who'd requested access through a waitlist. Meanwhile, SenseTime, which is an AI startup based here in Hong Kong, also announced the public launch of its own platform today. The company's stock surged 4% in Hong Kong after the news. Now, Baidu has been a frontrunner in China in the race to capitalize on the excitement around generative AI, the tech behind systems like ChatGPT or its successor, GPT-4. Baidu announced its own iteration back in February, giving it an early advantage in China, according to analysts. Since then, though, Competitors like Alibaba have also announced plans to launch their own ChatGPT-style tools, adding to the list of Chinese businesses jumping on this bandwagon. Now, Alibaba told CNN today it had filed for regulatory approval for its own bot, which was introduced in April. To stand out, companies are now showing off how their tech can be used for different scenarios. Baidu says its service is different because of its ability to generate various types of responses like text, images, audio, and video. Sensetime has touted a range of features, which it says lets users write code more efficiently or receive personalized medical advice. Michelle To, CNN, Hong Kong.
2: Okay, coming up here on First Move, pressure intensifying on Luis Rubiales to resign. Now, finally, the head of European football's governing body speaks out against the Spaniard. The details next. Spanish football president Luis Rubiales is still refusing to resign despite the outrage and mounting pressure. And now, 11 days after he forcibly kissed player Jennifer Hermoso at the Women's World Cup final in Sydney, the president of European football's governing body is speaking out. Alexander Seferin condemning the behaviour as inappropriate. Amanda Davis joins us now. Amanda, you and I were talking about this days and days and days ago. Uh, I guess better late than never.
13: Has it been worth the wait, though, Julia? (laughs) I think uh, in short, no, probably not. I mean, the silence, as we were talking about, not only from UEFA's president, Seferin, but from the official structures of of European football's governing body really has been deafening since uh, the incident that played out uh, in Sydney at the Women's World Cup final. UEFA's argument is that we are talking about an incident that played out at a FIFA event, the Women's World Cup final. We should be leaving it for them to deal with. Many other people's view is, hang on, this is European football's governing body, and this is taking place on their watch. Uh, I think it speaks volumes, really, as to the relationship between the president of UEFA, President Seferin and Luis Rubiales, uh, the now suspended president of the Spanish Football Federation, who, as you rightly said, despite the growing pressure for him to resign, has not officially done that. It is World Football's governing body, who have, FIFA, who have handed down the, the 90-day provisional suspension whilst they have opened disciplinary proceedings into what has happened. Has Seferin's statement done enough to placate the people who have felt really very, very hurt and let down? Well, this is what it says. Uh, it says, of course, what he did was inappropriate. We all know that. I hope he knows it was out of order. That's enough for the time being because the disciplinary committee will decide. I'm sad that such an event should overshadow the victory of the Spanish national team. We should change things. So he does say we should change things, Alexander Seferin, in his interview with French magazine L'Equipe. But he doesn't say how, what or when. And, you know, he is a man who, like the president, of FIFA. Gianni Infantino is a lawyer. He knows very well the games that are being played. We are talking about the structures of uh, football and politics at play. Would he have said anything were it not for the fact that the Champions League draw is taking place in Monaco in just a couple of hours time? I think it would have been very difficult for the the president of European football to uh, promote, to celebrate their flagship tournament with Five Spanish clubs involved without UEFA having said uh, anything. Interestingly, we still haven't seen or heard from Luis Rubiales since that defiant press conference where he refused to stand down. But the interim president of the Spanish Football Federation, Pedro Rocha, is there in Monaco and, as you would expect, uh, is facing some some questions and uh, there's, there's one topic on the agenda.
2: Yeah, of course there is. We'll see what comes from that. Uh, Amanda Davis, great to have you on, as always. Thank you. Now, a surprise hit song has been resonating with millions of Americans and embraced by politicians on both sides of the aisle. Just listen to this. These
7: rich men know the rich men. Speaking
2: about inequality, Oliver Anthony says he's enjoyed watching people embrace his song, Rich Men North of Richmond. It was even played at last week's Republican presidential debate. Sort of ironic because he says the song is about the people on that stage. Vanessa Yokevich has all the details.
6: I've been selling my soul,
11: working all
6: day, overtime hours for bullshit
11: pace. In the woods of rural Virginia... Oliver Anthony sings about what he knows. Back home and
3: drown my troubles away.
11: And millions of Americans now know him, too.
10: A lot's changed since the last time I sat here and spoke to you.
11: He has the number one song in the country.
8: Richmond.
11: Richmond. It was also featured at the Republican debate. Candidates were asked why they think it's resonating.
3: It was funny seeing it at the presidential debate. Because it's like, I wrote
7: that song about those people.
11: Politicians are trying to claim him as a Democrat or Republican.
3: I'm going to write, produce, and distribute authentic music that represents people and not politics.
11: The people from all walks of life are relating to what he has to say.
7: I like that. A lot of people are going to relate to
0: that.
11: The lyrics are awesome. Lindy, What's got, this guy's I got, name? I got goosebumps too. His real name is Christopher Anthony Lunsford. His friends call him Chris. He lives here in the woods of Farmville, Virginia with his family, just over an hour west of Richmond. He struggled with money, alcohol, depression, and sings about it all. He's everywhere but nowhere at the same time.
4: I think that his lifestyle and what he wanted to do and like live off the grid and, you know, live in the country. I mean that's that's what he wants to do. Oh, no.
11: On a random Wednesday evening, he sang in town at North Street Press Club.
4: He wanted it to be so everybody here locally could come out and see him.
11: Oliver Anthony says he's turned down $8 million deals since he shot to number one. He seems like a pretty down-to-earth individual. And this town is one town that's going to protect that if they can. What do you think about what he's saying and why people are resonating from all over. I think there's still a huge swath of people in the middle who just feel a little disenfranchised with the wealth disparity. Having somebody come out and sort of advocate or voice that frustration, it's not surprising to me that it resonates. How do you know Christopher?
3: Uh, He's my neighbor.
11: Anthony DeMarco has lived next door to Oliver Anthony for five years.
3: We still live on a dirt road.
11: He's now his merchandise guy.
3: He's just a guy that smiles a lot. Just a fun guy to be around. He says what everybody is feeling for the most part. We don't have a voice to say it to the Richmond, north of Richmond, and now we do. Uh-huh.
2: And finally, on First Move, something you don't see every day and perhaps redefining the term bull market, if that's indeed where they were headed. It's a bull in the passenger seat of a car. Yes. Take a look at this. It happened this week in Nebraska in the United States, and there's a chance this may not actually have been the first time. As you can see the driver heavily modified his vehicle which was once a police car in fact to carry his friend whose name is howdy doody it left motorists doing all sorts of double takes and i think even the police were probably scratching their heads too they eventually sent the driver away with a warning to take the animal home which he reportedly did now clearly the officers didn't want to lock horns with man or that beast and there was clearly a lot at stake for all. See what I did there? Plenty of news today and a meaty end to the show. <laughs> and that's it for First Move. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my X and Instagram pages. You can search for at jchatterleycnn. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level.